Welcome back to Fall Classic Rewind, the stories behind the World Series. We're on to the 1979 World Series after we covered the Reds getting swept by the Pittsburgh Pirates, three games to none, and the Baltimore Orioles overcoming the Angels in four games, both kind of tremendous series that had lots of close extra inning games kind of coming down to the final at bat and then sort of ending both series ending in blowouts uh, and really sort of seeing the triumph of the best teams from each league, the Pirates and the Orioles. So for game one, we're moving on to Memorial Stadium. Um, We'll have plenty more to cover, like getting into the storylines of this specific game, lineups, the pitching matchup, who has the edge and all of that. Um, But this is a reminder of kind of two things. Number one, it's a rematch of 1971, the 71 series. Different teams, of course, some similar faces. Willie Stargell is there for the Pirates. Um, Manny Sanguian, but he's now more of an, in a bench role. I believe it's kind of same for Rennie Stennett. Um, but different manager, Chuck Tanner, instead of Danny Murtaugh. Uh, and then, of course, you have a pitcher, actually tonight's starting pitcher, Bruce Keeson, uh, was, I believe, a rookie on the 1971 team. A little bit of a diff. And again, we have the same manager. Earl Weaver, of course, was the manager of the 71 Orioles, uh, who lost in seven games to the Pirates. And we're going to go seven games again. It's going to be another really tight series. Um, But most of the players, you know, so the likes of Frank Robinson, Boo Powell, Dave McNally, Mike Cuellar, Brooks, well, they're not there anymore, right? Um, Mark Belanger's still there, but, you know, he's kind of more in a part-time role now. Jim Palmer, of course, he's still great. Uh, but it's a whole new set of pitchers. We discussed this. I, I recommend you, if you haven't gotten a chance to listen back on to the championship series in both leagues, uh, where we really kind of got to know these teams uh, who are matching up in the World Series. The second major part is this is going to be a great send-off and sort of in and a sort of the finale of what I think is one of, if not the best decades of baseball, especially when it comes to World Series matchups, right? You know, we've uh, covered se- we've covered seventy three uh, with the Mets and the A's. We covered seventy five with the Reds and the Red Sox. We're gonna probably be staying on the seventies. I don't know where we're gonna go after this, but it's been awesome, awesome matchups in the World Series. And we're going to get another great one here in 79. And so it's important for both of these teams, right? Heading into this World Series, wanting to take game one. For the Orioles, wanting, it's, again, while it's new faces, the guy at the helm is still Earl Weaver and He really wants to win. He badly wants to win. Felt like they should have won in 71 uh, and has been kind of getting the itch to get back there. Um, And for the Pirates, this is a really important series. You know, anytime you get a chance to win the World Series, you want to. But as we mentioned when we covered them in the NLCS, 
this is really kind of for bragging rights in the decade in many ways. Like the Reds kind of have the advantage over them in, in many ways. Um, but this would show with the amount of winning that they've done overall, right? The Pirates. And with the way they swept them out, they swept the Reds out in the championship series, you know, to have two World Series to match up directly with the Reds, that really puts you in, in competition for best team of the decade in the National League. Yeah. In the American League, it's probably the A's, though the Orioles, if they were able to take this series, would have something to say about that as well. More on all of that and all of the great storylines heading into this awesome World Series after a word from our sponsor. Hiya, friends. Boob Pile here. And even though it's been a few years since I put on an Orioles uni, I'm so proud to be a new member of the Orioles Hall of Fame. Oh, I love everything about Baltimore. Coming out of Memorial and rooting for the birds as they make another great run for the World Series here in 79. You know what else I love? Barbecued pit beef. I'm from the South, so I like a spicy rub on my barbecue. And when I'm not firing up my own charcoal grill for friends and neighbors, I'll drive on out to the Pulaski Highway and I'll stop and pick up a pit beef sandwich from one of those charcoal pit beef stands. Some horseradish sauce on top with a kick to it. Mm, mm, mm. So stop on by and pick up some sandwiches of your own from a charcoal pit beef stand. You know what? That gives me an idea. Boog's Barbecue Stand. Well, that's just my work. It's just mine. These are two relatively similar teams, you know, kind of different faces, of course, from 1971, but their construction is similar. A lot of platoon matchups that managers Chuck Tanner and Earl Weaver love to go to, right? Sort of having that platoon in left field with Bill Robinson and John Milner and then Lowenstein and Gary Ranicki on the side for the Orioles. Um but, you know, they've got the the first baseman, the slugging first baseman and right fielder combo in the middle of the order. Ken Singleton and Eddie Murray for the for the Orioles. Dave Parker and Willie Stargell for the Pirates. Scrappy shortstops. Third baseman who can pick it and swing it. Solid defensive catchers behind the dish. Center fielders who look pretty different. Moreno, a kind of tall, slender guy who runs like a gazelle or the antelope, as they call him. And then little Al Bumbry, that stocky guy who can cover ground just as well. Uh, and they both get on base and wreak havoc once they are on the bases. And then, of course, they've got pitching staffs loaded with arms. You know, you have stars, future Hall of Famers and Jim Palmer and Bart Blythe Levin. Really excellent lefties in Candelaria, Mike Flanagan, Scott McGregor. Big arms like Dennis Martinez and Jim Bibby, and then out of the bullpen, the likes of Grant Jackson, Don Stanhouse, Tim Stoddard, Kent Tacolve. Guys who would fit in on either team. I think that's what's always so interesting when you get to a matchup like this is these teams that had a lot of swagger, had a and were a close knit bunch. Um, 
but also had a bunch of sort of interchangeable parts, right? And, and that's what made both of these teams so excellent in the decade of the 70s is it wasn't so reliant on one or two players. Like they, you could put different cogs into the machine and it was the brilliance, the collective that was so good uh, that made these teams go. And the reason why, you know, they consistently won over 90 games pretty much every year throughout the decade, save, save a couple. Um, why both of these teams have the argument for the best of the 70s. I'm going to play for you here a little sort of pre-roll audio into sort of you get some sounds from the fans, sounds from the clubhouses and the players, maybe even some of the managers. I believe we can hear Chuck Tanner and then sort of like a little intro. I believe it's probably from either the the taping or the sort of like the 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 sort of recap of the series, but it, it kind of sets the stage for what we've got here. And uh, after that, we'll get into sort of the pregame and the matchups and lineups that we've got for game one. Take a listen to the sounds heading into game one at Memorial Stadium. Hey, who else? Program, you folks, for a car lineup for the base game. Four more for the four games you're going to win to win the 1979 Fall Classic. You never know when you get in Baltimore. I love the Warriors. I watch America's South Little World. It's my first World Series. They win for me. I think the Pirates are going to win because they got the most devastating hitting in the National League or any league. You know, not all, all the time, but generally, generally I'm going to throw fastballs, 80% of fastballs in the ball game, and especially if he's getting them out. <laughs> <laughs> I'm taking my seven sliders. I'll make it talk. I'll make it talk. Don't throw it there. Hey. <laughs> of the fans equals the glamour of the event. Memorial Stadium, home of the surprising Baltimore Orioles, winners of 102 regular season games, a team that defied the odds makers by overthrowing the world champion New York Yankees, then beating the California Angels in four games to win the American League pennant. After an opening night rainout, the birds and their flock are set to battle the team that calls itself the family. The loose and limber Pittsburgh Pirates, winners of 98 games, the most by a Pittsburgh team in 70 years. But the Bucks' divisional battle with Montreal wasn't settled until the final day. Captain Willie Stargell then steered the Pirates' ship to a sweep of Cincinnati in the National League Championship Series. A superb matchup for baseball's 76th World Series. 
The matchup between the managers is something that's really key in this series. Earl Weaver thought of as probably the best manager in baseball, certainly was the most winning manager who was still active at that point, though had not had the World Series and postseason success, uh, you know, of the likes of a Walter Alston or a Billy Martin um, or even someone like a Dick Williams, right? It is seen as a guy who sometimes would fall short in the big game. I think that's a little unfair to say about Earl. But opposing him is Chuck Tanner, also a very thoughtful manager, not afraid to make changes, to use his bench, use his bullpen. And one of the keys, and this is stepping back, and this is looking more at the general manager standpoint, but also back then the managers themselves had a lot more say about who was on their team, who was going to be on the team and in the lineup versus now where it's really the front office running it rather than the manager. Um, But those things play a part. The roster construction of both of these teams, I believe, is outstanding. And it allowed them to be so successful throughout the decade. Um, Also, you know, picking up the right pitchers matters a lot, too. You know, having having so many horses to go to and run out there and get you outs and then having good defenders behind them makes the job a lot easier. And, you know, of course, having Hall of Famers at the plate, too. Doesn't hurt you either. Doesn't hurt you either. Um, But that's what I find so interesting is the matchup between the managers is one of the other factors to consider in this series. Um, Earl Weaver, who, of course, has the reputation of being such a great manager. Chuck Tanner, you know, had managed before, but this is, you know, this is his first time in the World Series. How is he going to respond to the challenge? He seemed very much up to it. In the championship series, how is he going to respond to the World Series? Well, maybe to reflect on some of that and some of the other storylines, especially around Earl Weaver, we're going to hear from our broadcasters right here. First, we're going to get a little intro from Keith Jackson, and then we're going to hear from Howard Cosell talking about Earl Weaver and what he brings to the table and his approach to the game. And hello again, everybody. I'm Keith Jackson. It is about 40 degrees as we get ready for game one. Back in 1962, the Yankees and Giants took 13 days to play seven games. The prognosis for the weather for the weekend is not all that good. We may need some extra days to get this one in. These two teams last met 1971. The Pirates won in seven games. The Pirates are making their seventh appearance in the World Series. They have won four times. Baltimore making its fifth appearance in the World Series. The Orioles are two and two. Incidentally, in this 1979 series, there will be no designated hitter. It's an alternating thing, and this year they play at the National League way. Right now, I want to talk about the winningest manager in all of baseball. An extraordinary guy, really. That's a cocky Bantam, Natterell Weaver, the manager of the Birds. Over 1,100 wins against 743 losses. You know what he's done as a manager? He's won six Eastern Division titles. He's won four American League pennants, one world championship. He's a personality. We want you to meet him now, up close and personal. When I was four or five years old and I was watching Dizzy Dean and Pepper Martin and Leo DeRocher and 
Joe Medwick, I thought that I'd play in the big leagues. And uh, when I was 17 years old, I signed a professional contract with the St. Louis Cardinals. And uh, I failed. I spent 11 years managing in the minor leagues. And uh, once I took that position, all I wanted to be was a good organization man so that I would have a job in baseball. The object of any game, chess, checkers, monopoly, whatever you might want to play, there has to be a winner in the game. The object is to win, or you can't even start the game. If everybody tried to lose, you'd have no game. In fact, I have to respect all the people in the game that are in a position to have to decide whether it's a win or loss. Uh, umpires are not my enemies, but the fact that I holler at them is right. And the people all over the United States are going to get the impression that he dislikes umpires. It's, that's not true. I do not dislike umpires, but I do holler at them when I feel that one of their decisions have gone against us. I recommend you go and uh, f- click the link that's in the description and actually go and watch this game or watch some like certain clips of it. Because in this little intro about Earl Weaver, they go and talk about his love of gardening and how he finds peace in the garden and how it kind of allows him to sort of relieve some of the stress of managing. Cause ultimately Earl Weaver cares so much about winning. He was very paranoid and had a lot of superstitions and tormented himself. And you can actually visibly see that. Um, he of course had a great staff behind him, had Frank Robinson sort of as his bench coach and allowed Frank Robinson to sort of take over uh, the outfield, um, you know, coaching the outfield. And in fact, like 78, the Orioles hadn't been very good in the outfield. Part of that was due to injuries. Uh, but Frank Robinson sort of overhauled their approach and their positioning uh, and apparently made a huge difference in how they played. Um, got Cal Ripken Sr. as the third base coach and Jim Fry, who would go on the next year to take the Royals all the way to the World Series. How about that? He's the first base coach and uh, many others, a great staff. Um, Earl Weaver put together a great team. Um, Before we get into this game, I do want to talk about the starting pitcher for the Orioles tonight. And that's Mike Flanagan. And I'll be... And I'll talk about him as I go throughout the game, and especially as we wrap up. Um, Flanagan, unfortunately, had a very tragic end to his life. Um, But he was the guy, when he was a pitcher, you know, was a Cy Young caliber pitcher, won the Cy Young, one of the better left-handed pitchers across the league, part of the World Series in 83, you know, a reliable left-handed arm uh, throughout his career. Uh, Would actually, you know, post-career become a broadcaster, eventually actually becoming the general manager of the Orioles, um, you know, before moving on from that position, coming back as a broadcaster. The sad part was um, about his life. He was a man who really struggled with depression and fought with depression through much of his life. There was a darkness um, his wife described about him. Um, He unfortunately died by suicide, a self-inflicted gunshot wound. Um, about 13 years. It was around 2010, 2011, um, which was sad. I remember it, you know, cause he used to be sort of a studio host and sometimes, you know, you know, coming in doing play by play with the, uh, with Masson for the Orioles. Um, but he was a longtime pitcher for the Orioles 
a very effective left-hander and um you know it makes it actually almost all the more incredible how effective he was knowing what he was dealing with um that's kind of revealed afterwards but um you know you're going to see in this game a guy who battles a guy who goes out there and gives it his all um and really finds a way to have that balance um and deliver some brilliance as well uh and really because here's the thing about pitching man it is a tough art it is a tough job because you're out there alone right um and there are days where everything's going great and there are days where nothing works and you can get hit around and you know you're the you're the person who has the most control over the game that's something that can be empowering but it's quite daunting and can be quite a lot and uh just to know for mike flanagan the other things he was battling in his life man um makes you appreciate the greatness that he was able to bring even more um and man, 1979 was his year. It was his best year in the big leagues, won 23 games, developed a changeup with the help of Scott McGregor, uh, who had come over from the Yankees. Uh, and that really turned basically, you know, he finished his season with a flourish, I believe going 17 and five down the stretch, really strong ERA, threw a, a lot of complete games, threw a lot of pitches. Man. Flanagan, you're going to see in this game, he was that he was that guy who would battle out there, um, but also at this point had the stuff to really overpower guys. Um, and he's going to um, he's going to present a big challenge for these Pittsburgh Pirates, but they're going to present a challenge for him as well. Uh, and how he's going to get through this game is really really impressive. Someone who knows quite a lot about pitching in big games and, and going through all that is Don Drysdale. Uh, and here we're going to hear from Don Drysdale before we get into the lineups and all of that. Um, we're going to hear from Don Drysdale to talk about his thoughts on the pitching staffs of the two respective teams. Two brilliant managers, really brilliant. We've told you about Earl Weaver earlier. Now we want to tell you about Chuck Tanner because he shares with Weaver a key characteristic, the uncanny ability to use the total roster, to pluck just the right man off the bench at the right time to produce. Finally, as you look throughout the series for a hero, don't overlook the little guys in so many past series. Suddenly, the most valuable player has been the likes of Bucky Dent, Bobby Richardson, and Billy Martin. Now, the all-important question of the pitching, and who better to analyze the staffs for you than the twin D, Don Drysdale. Thank you very much, Howard. Well, of course, when you're talking about both clubs, you're talking about strong pitching staffs. As a matter of fact, Baltimore, they led the American League in earned run average. Pittsburgh was third in the National League, and that was behind Houston and, of course, Montreal. With the first day off, you're not going to have the off day. Earl Weaver wanted to go with 
set, I'd make that five left-handers throughout the course of this season. But I think right now, with the off day, the strong pitching staff of Baltimore, they have the edge. I think the key is going to be John Candelaria. Baltimore has strong starters. As a matter of fact, when Jim Palmer, he when he was ready to go, they had two starters for every game. Both clubs strong in relief. Stewart, Stoddard, Stanhouse, Martinez, and Stone. Pittsburgh, they have Romo Jackson to Colby. And of course, right now, as we look at this game, well, it's going to be something that's going to really be super if the pitching holds up. The first thing to mention about this game, and I think it plays a factor, is today was actually supposed to be game two. It was rained out. Torrential downpour in Baltimore in game the night that game one was supposed to be played and the field was still wet. In fact, it snowed in the morning. It's cold, damp. The field is all ripped up also because, you know, at Memorial, the Colts were still playing there. So it's something that, uh, man, little, little tough heading into game one, but Bowie Kuhn was on the field, decided, Hey, we're going Despite the outfield being ripped up, it's still being wet outside and it, you know, starting at 40 degrees and only getting colder. Makes, you know, Mike Flanagan's performance tonight all that more impressive uh, given the conditions. But here we go with the lineups for the visiting Pittsburgh Pirates. First time that we're actually going to see sort of the left-handed, uh, the 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 lineup kind of stocked with righties, um, you know, because the Reds didn't start any lefties. So Omar Moreno's in center, Foley at short, Parker in right, Bill Robinson actually hitting, hitting fourth, Stargell hitting fifth, Madlock sixth, Nicosia behind the plate, Phil Garner at second, and Bruce Keeson, a guy who's, dominated in his appearances so far in October, in September and October, been a great down the stretch pitcher um, throughout his career, gets the call in game one. Uh, interestingly enough, not going with Candelaria or Bly Levin or even Jim Bibby, going Bruce Keese in game one. Interesting decision from Chuck Tanner, but given his pa- past success in postseason, you can understand why. For the Orioles, it's kind of as you'd expect. Bumbry leading off. Belanger at short. Um, you know, they loved his defense. Um, though hitting him second is, again, I, I do question Earl on that. Singleton in right. Eddie Murray at first. Lowenstein in left. Desense at third. Billy Smith playing second. Dempsey behind the plate. And, of course, Flanagan on the mound. And, of course, no DH in this game. Uh, does play a factor, does change things up. Um, you know, it makes you play a different ball game. Um, but, you know, Earl Weaver managed much of his career without a D, you know, the first couple of years without a DH. So not too hard to switch back to it. And they've got plenty of guys on the bench to pinch hit and fill in where needed. Neither of these teams are afraid to use their bench. So to start off this game, Flanagan actually falls behind Moreno, but then gets him to to roll over to second. Gets Tim Foley to fly out to left. And then Dave Parker rips one down the right field line. He actually, uh, he's able to get a double. It looks like 
you know, trainer has to come out. He kind of grabs his hamstring. I know the feeling about that where you take off running and it's cold and ooh, you get a little bit of tightness. It's hard to know. It's like, oh, did I pull something or am I just not warmed up yet? Uh, Dave Parker, of course, stays in the game. You're not taking him out of a playoff game. And as we'll see as we get in later in this game, I don't think his legs were affected too bad. But that brings up Bill Robinson to the plate. And, you know, early trouble, early opportunity here for the Pirates to, to you know, get the game started, got a runner in scoring position. It also means it's an opportunity for Mike Flanagan to show why he was the Cy Young of the American League in 1979. But it's in that change, and he throws it a lot. That's really made him a good pitcher. You know, since June 8th of this year, Flanagan finished the season 17 wins and five losses. And, well, if you're going to finish strong, that's the way to finish it. Well, that's the key point. That's when he started using that changeup, developing confidence in it, because he said he had been throwing the fastball and the curve exclusively in the early going, and he hadn't been winning the way his talent would have dictated. Struck him out. So the top half of the first inning is over. Pittsburgh leaves Dave Parker standing at second base, and Flanagan strikes out Robinson. So after one half inning of play, Pittsburgh nothing, Baltimore coming to bat. Game one, 1979 World Series. A great pitch there from Mike Flanagan. Really kind of pitched backwards in this at-bat, going with the breaking ball and the changeup to get ahead and kind of finishes off with what looks almost like a cutter down and in. Might have just been a fastball that he got uh, he got inside of. Uh, had a little bit of that sort of moving action, diving down and in. Robinson, no chance at it. So on the mound is Bruce Keeson, a guy, as I've mentioned, who's pitched really well in the postseason in his career and was once again a very solid pitcher for the Pirates this season. The Pirates had a bevy of arms to go to. I mean, that's sort of, you know, the Orioles had a a set rotation. It was either Flanagan or Palmer 1-2, Martinez, McGregor. That's who was going. A little bit more of a fluid situation for the Pirates of hey, we're going to go with who we think has got the best chance tonight. Um, you know, so, and kind of everyone would be called on in the bullpen and all of that stuff. Um, so it's just very interesting, the decision to go with Keeson. And I wonder if there was some second guessing based off of how this first inning goes. Though, I will say, it's not as if Keeson is necessarily making too many mistakes here. It's just some bad things happen behind him. So to lead off, right, Al Bumbry singles one, basically takes the first pitch, lines it into center field, so immediately trouble from the start. And then Mark Belanger, who's basically trying to bunt, right, or or not like, you know, concerned about the steal and all that, he walks on four pitches. And so that brings up Ken Singleton, who – um, actually ends up grounding out right back, hits the ball hard. It bounces off of Keeson's glove. He's not able to secure it. Probably a ball that would have been a double play, right? But it bounces in front of him. He's only got one play and it's at first. And then Eddie Murray, he walks on five pitches. In fact, fell behind 3-0. He takes a big hack on 3-0. Um, 
but then pitch way out of the zone in the 3-1 count. And that brings up John Lowenstein. And here is the most important play of the first inning where, you know, when, where the conditions of the field, it, it, you know, starting a little bit late, it's a really choppy infield. The, the grass is all ripped up. It's cold. It's hard to get a grip, you know, when you're on the mound. So that can have an effect for your command. It seems like it has an effect on Keeson's command here, but it also affects the infielders. And when you get an opportunity, essentially, to get out of an inning, right? So it's bases loaded, one out. You got Lowenstein at the plate. You want to find a way to get out of the inning right here, right now. But about... And Keeson is going to make a great pitch and is going to get exactly what he wants. Unfortunately, just about... Everything else from there goes wrong for the Pirates. Here's Lowenstein. I think one of the key tributes that Earl Weaver has made to three players on this Baltimore ball club. And here's one of them, Johnny Lowenstein. The other is Terry Crowley. The other is Benny Ayala. He says, you know, everybody wants to play. But he says, I can't play everybody all the time. But he says, I've got three veterans on this ball club that don't gripe about anything. I platoon them. I'll put them in here. I'll put them in there. They're all up in age, but they all do the job. Pitch is low. Ball one. Snake and sleeves say that tonight let it be Lowenstein. <laughs> he was born in Wolf Point, Montana. He lives now in Las Vegas. At school at UC Riverside Anthropology. Ball is hit on the ground to the second baseman, Garner. Throws it away. Two runs score. card stacked perfectly and the ball was hit to Garner he had trouble right off the bat getting the ball out of his glove as he sees he turns and now he can't find the handle now when he throws it it's way away from Foley who actually committed himself too early now the ball is out in left field two run score runners at the corners and Pittsburgh in trouble here in the first Colden on the button Donald because that ball slipped up his glove and he had trouble corralling it and then threw hurriedly and errantly. The usually sure-handed Phil Garner and frankly the sure-handed Pittsburgh Pirates making a huge mistake right there. Can't get the ball out of his glove and then throws it away. Probably had time to reset, make the throw to first or maybe even just shovel it over uh, to second a costly costly error bringing in two runs and to to top it off right it's still only one out and we've got first and third more trouble for Keeson and it's not getting much better with Doug DeSensei stepping into the plate it's really kind of the ner- it almost feels like the energy of the crowd and the nerves and the cold and everything, it just seems to be getting to the Pirates and getting to Bruce Keeson specifically. And in fact, Willie Stargell notices that. He goes and he comes, puts puts that big bear paw on his shoulder, tries to calm him down. He falls behind 2-0 to DeSensei and he's like, hey, calm down. 
You made the right pitch. You're right here. Nothing to worry about, man. Just get us back at, get a ground ball, get us back in the dugout. We've got you. But unfortunately, those calming words didn't really, don't really seem to work for Bruce Keeson. Because here's what happens on the very next pitch. Ball bounces away from Nicosia. Murray comes to the plate. It's 3 nothing Baltimore. Mistakes by the Pirates hurting them here in the bottom of the first inning. The very thing the Pirates have not been doing until this inning. Well, here's a ball down in the dirt. Nicosia tries to make the play on the ball, and it's just such a bad pitch that he cannot get down there. That ball hitting and then bouncing off his right shin guard and going back over towards the Baltimore dugout. No chance to get Murray coming home, and Lowenstein stands at second. That's a wild pitch. Early in the year, the Bucks had a facility for beating themselves. They started poorly, as has so often been there, won't. But if ever a team put it together, the Bucks did in their sweep of the Reds. Just a nightmare of a first inning. It's 3 nothing, only one out. Keeson can't seem to locate. And somehow, some way, this nightmare is going to get even worse. With Doug DeSensei at the plate. Doug DeSensei, the heir apparent to Brooks Robinson, is going to do what Brooks Robinson did in his first ever World Series at bat all the way back in 1966. Take a listen to Doug DeSensei capping off a great first inning for the Baltimore Orioles and an absolute nightmare for the Pittsburgh Pirates. It's three and one now, three nothing. A single by Bumbry, a walk. Then you had the ground out, then you had another walk, you had the error on Garner, now you've got a wild pitch, you've got three runs in, and there's a high drive, hit the left field, going way yeah, back, gone. it's gone, forget it! That, ladies and gentlemen, is Doug DeSensei, with that no longer so occasional home run power. And the birds are off to a big start, as a sign says here in the ballpark, the bird will fly. And Dr. Sensei, he can hit him as far as anybody. And of course, he's ahead on the count. And you talk about these things. He's looking fastball all the way up over the plate. And believe me, I can tell you from past experience, there's nothing that goes further than a high sinker. <laughs> a ball absolutely crushed by Doug DeSensei. You can hear how excited the crowd is and the feelings of we got a 5 nothing lead in the first inning of the World Series with a Cy Young on the hill, our ace this year? Come on. Ain't, ain't life great? Uh, they go on to mention, of course, what Brooks Robinson did back in 1966. And who did he hit that home run off of? Off of? Well, of course, the guy who's in the booth, Don Drysdale. <laughs> they had a good chuckle about that. And of course, uh, Drysdale hadn't forgotten that. And, you know, he, in fact, the Orioles set a World Series at the time, a World Series record for most runs in the first inning with their five. 
And Drysdale joked, he was like, well, they set a World Series record. I thought they scored more than that against me. <laughs> Drysdale actually wasn't too bad in that game. It was just the early homers. The uh, Orioles pitching was more than up to the task in that series. Uh, we might have to cover that at another time. But man, a really rough start in this World Series for Bruce Keeson and the Pirates. And then actually Billy Smith is going to go over and get a line drive into right field and Keeson's day is done. A third of an inning only retires one batter out of the seven he faced. Now, granted, he probably should have had two double plays in the inning. One came back to him, bounced off of his glove, and Phil Garner threw the other away. And... But at the end of the day, you got you got to pick up your teammates when they make a mistake. And, you know, it's a tough way to start this series. Jim Rooker, the lefty, is actually going to come in and pitch. Um, and one thing I got to say from the outset, the Pirates bullpen is going to be phenomenal in this game. A really... You know, you could look at the box score of this game, see what happened, and just be like, oh, well, yeah, no, that's the, the Orioles. They got out to a big lead, and that was it. But really what happens in this game, it kind of become like, it's similar to the last game Mike Flanagan pitched against the Angels, if you go back and listen to that one, where... Orioles jump out to a big early lead. Offense is going early. And then the bats go quiet. And then when it seems like Mike Flanagan was cruising, which by the way, he's going to do in this game, by the way, early on, you know, second inning, he comes out, he strikes out Willie Stargell, gets some, gets some easy ground outs. He's looking unblemished, unflummoxed. He's look, looking like he's ready to rise to the moment. But now we've gotten to the fourth inning, right? It's the fourth inning. Jim Rooker did a great job, has put up zero after zero, and is going to continue putting up zeros in this game, actually. And to start off the fourth, Tim Foley gets a single up the middle. Dave Parker singles through the right side, hits one hard. Bill Robinson uh, grounds out... uh, to third, um, you know, to set up second, uh, second and third. And that brings up Willie Stargell. Now I bring back, I bring your mind back to the previous game, Mike Flanagan pitched where they had a big lead and Earl Weaver stuck with him, but the angels just started chipping away. It's like, you know, that was obviously a much bigger lead. That was like a nine to one lead, an eight run lead where, you know, you, that's a lot more of a daunting task, but a five-run lead really with the Pirates' offense is not that much. Um, and so if you can just start chipping away, especially in the middle innings rather than the late innings, it makes it makes the challenge a little bit harder. Makes the challenge a little bit harder. And that's exactly what happens. Willie Stargell at the plate, actually kind of a missed opportunity here. He's going to get a, a fat pitch to hit, and he's going to hit it hard. But it's, it's going to result in a run, but just not 
exactly what the Pirates are looking for in this situation. But they'll take the run. You can tell how cold it is. The breath pretty steamy. Winds it up. And the pitch is inside. Interesting now, as you look at Chuck Tanner, because he's got the towel wrapped around his neck, because it's chilly, as Ethan and all of us have noted. Flanagan has not gone to the chain. That's interesting. And I'm just watching and wondering how long it's going to be before he goes back to that chain. Got Willie on it. Let's see. Fastball, and it's a shot. Second baseman has it. Throw to first base. Run scores. Two out. And finally, Pittsburgh gets on the board. Parker going over to third. Foley comes home as Willie Stargell gets an RBI. Two down. Madlock coming to the plate. That was a really well hit ball by Willie Stargell. Just right at the second baseman, Billy Smith. Not able to find a hole to bring in two runs. And, uh, you know, Mike Flanagan actually has a really tough at bat, ends up walking Bill Madlock, um, who puts together a, a great at battle, fouling off pitches. Um, but then he's able to get um he's able to get Steve Nicosia to ground out to short in a force out. Um, but then the Pirates bullpen, you know, continues Jim Rooker puts up another zero in the fourth inning. Um, they end up pitch hitting for him. I didn't believe Manning Sanguian actually gets a base hit or something. Uh, Flanagan, and that is one thing, is the Pirates really make Flanagan work kind of from the middle innings on. He doesn't have to work too hard early in this game. But from the middle innings, they really they put on a bunch of base runners. Uh, they battle at the plate. They really make Flanagan work. And he's going to put together a ridiculous workload in this game, in this cold weather. Um like I said, they're able to start kind of chipping away and at the same time completely shut off the gas for the Orioles. I mean, the Orioles, they're able to get some base runners, but they're just really not hitting the ball hard, not really threatening anything. Uh, you know, Enrique Romo comes in in the bottom of the fifth. Uh, he does walk Eddie Murray, but he gets some pretty weak flyouts. It's an interesting thing uh, in... Um, in, ba- in baseball reference, you go to the box score and it says, oh, fly ball, deep center field. And that's just false. The I mean, it's a deep ballpark, but these were not well-hit balls. They were pretty, all three from Lowenstein, DeSensei, and Rick Dempsey, all pretty weak fly balls. Um, and so another zero for, for them. Now we get to the top of the six, five, one lead. And once again, the pirates put the pressure on Dave Parker singles up the middle. He's already three for three in this game, having a great start to his world series. Bill Robinson dumps one into right field. Willie Sargell then ends up striking out just completely. It's kind of an every other at bat here thing for Willie Sargell. First at bat overpowered looks ridiculous on some sweeping breaking balls. Then he hits the ball hard to second at bat, gets an RBI. Third at bat, swinging wildly. So pay attention to the fourth at bat. (laughs) Bill Madlock then flies out to right. 
but Steve Nicosia chops one over to third base and Doug DeSensei can't come up with it. Not exactly Brooks Robinson over there, a pretty good defensive third baseman, but that is a key thing. And Phil Garner at the plate, a guy who, who his error really in many ways has cost the pirates five runs, right? It's one of those that, well, yeah, it, it directly led to two runs, but really in reality, it led to five because he makes the play, right? It's a double play. There's no run scored that inning. And Hey, maybe the pirates are looking to win this game, looking to be in the lead, looking to extend the lead here rather than fighting back from down five, one, but Phil Garner right here is going to do his part to, to make up for his error by bringing in two runs of his own. A ball, two strikes. How do you like that figure? That's the one we mentioned earlier. Hit hard, base hit left field. Here comes Parker. Here comes Robinson. Lowenstein will bring it back to third base, and all of a sudden it is five to three, Baltimore, with the tying runs aboard. They keep coming back, and certainly gone as a tone. Dante, he just fights that slider off of him and hits it to the hole. And now that will bring out Earl Weaver. Lowenstein has no play. Johnny just makes a good play to get in front of the ball and get it back in. So Weaver will talk to Flanagan and Dempsey. A nice swing from Phil Garner and the Pirates get two unearned runs of their own here. And the pressure's still on because it's first and second and... Lee Lacey then pinch hits for Enrique Romo and chops one over to third. DeSensei makes yet another error. How about that? Two guys who made costly, who've made costly errors, but have also done it at the plate. Phil Garner and DeSensei, both mustachioed men. Um, and so now it's bases loaded and the bullpen's going but Earl Weaver sticks with Mike Flanagan. He sticks with his ace. Uh, and Omar Moreno hits a kind of a lazy fly ball into center. Al Pumbrey comes in, secures with two hands. Orioles out of the jam. Because, I mean, this is now a real ball game, right? What you think five run first standing, okay. But when, when you don't add on, when you don't extend, it puts all the more pressure on on your pitching and on your defense. Now, I do want to say for the defense, the field is terrible. I mean, like, it's awful, awful. I cannot believe they're actually playing or that they didn't have some better way to cover and protect the field because it's just, it's bad. It's real bad. It's the most ugly looking with how ripped up the turf is and all that stuff. I can't believe that they're playing a World Series in that. Um, But it was the 70s, man. (laughs) <laughs> and they weren't going they weren't going to bang two days of the world series they were gonna they were gonna play that night uh no matter the conditions don robinson one of the heroes for the pirates in uh in the championship series he comes in and his stuff is still just as as it was then and he one two three inning gets a strikeout gets two easy ground outs again putting mike flanagan right back out there but to Flanagan's credit he comes down he comes back with a really really quick inning 
gets Foley out on one pitch, gets Parker out on two, and gets Bill Robinson to fly out on the first pitch. So a four-pitch inning, which is kind of crazy. Like, I think Flanagan's probably up already around 100 pitches in this inning, <laughs> like by the time we've gotten to this inning. But man, man, oh man, has he had to work like crazy. So that quick seventh is probably what allows him to continue in this game because probably if anyone got on, Weaver would have gone to the bullpen. Though I don't know. I mean, back then, you know, they they let guys throw 150 pitches. Um, in the bottom of the seventh, Robinson on the mound does walk Ken Singleton. Eddie Murray flies out to center. Lowenstein flows out to Leif. And then DeSense, who's really kind of had the best swings of the night so far, is looking to make up for that error that he made a couple innings earlier. And he's going to put a charge into one. But Dave Parker, well, for a guy his size, looking like a big tight end or a wide receiver running down the ball better than just about anybody, Dave Parker. Here's DeSensei. He hits the ball hard to right center field. Parker with his dashing speed oh! and long arms runs it down on one of the best plays of the night. And so, great catch by Parker. The Orioles are turned away. And we have played seven innings of baseball with Baltimore leading by a score of five to three. As we watch Parker run it down, he just literally outran the baseball. You see him splashing that through splash, that puddle? That's it. Yeah, in the in the slow mo replay, you can see the ground splashing as uh, as Parker runs that one down right before the warning track in right center. Descends a beautiful swing. I mean, that ball Singleton scoring easy with two outs and a ball to the gap like that. So a really important uh, cutting down. Finally, we get to see some good defense in this game. Um, a lot of the plays so far have been easy, and then we've had the errors. Uh, but, you know, given the conditions, that is a heck of a play from Dave Parker. And feels like a momentum thing. Like, momentum's real and it, and it isn't, you know. But there is something to the fact that, man, the Orioles came out swinging and then they can get nothing going, and it seems like the Pirates are just charging right at them. And to start, leading off the bottom of the eighth, Willie Stargell gets into a two-strike count. But man, oh man, if you leave a breaking ball in the, in the zone to Willie Stargell, it's not going to look great for you. I can tell you that much. Hit high, hard, and deep, and so long. It's a 5-4 ball game. You can get Starjo for a while, but sooner or later. Right now, this game is clearly in the pattern of the Pittsburgh team during the whole second half of the season. Tanner using relief pitcher on relief pitcher. The relief pitchers holding tight. They've gone five and a third innings now. As you look at this again, without allowing a hit to the birds and then pecking away pecking away getting the key hits given the opportunity gone is two run blow and now starts so we've got a one run ball game 
Willie Stargell's legendary postseason run continues. And in many ways, it's just getting started uh, here in this World Series. A blast. I mean, hanging breaking ball and just demolished to right field. No doubt about it. And now it's just a one-run game. It's five to four. And somehow, Mike Flanagan's still pitching, even though he's already over 100 pitches. And it's a one-run game. And you have righties coming up. I, I, I think there's something to be said where I think Earl Weaver psyched himself out in this series a little bit with Chuck Tanner, really concerned about the moves that Chuck Tanner was going to make. He's like, if I bring in a righty, then he's going to bring in Milner or Ed Ott or Sten or, or just whoever, right? Whoever the hitter was without thinking, Hey, my pitchers may be struggling a little bit here and I should just be getting him out regardless. And what's interesting is now, you know, Flangan's able to respond. He's able to get Madlock to fly out. Madlock puts a little charge into one, but it's a deep center field there at Memorial. And then he's able to strike out Nicosia. But then Phil Garner grounds one to third. The ball actually gets lost. It's a chopper that gets lost in the lights and Desensei again can't come up with the ball. Three balls in a row to him that he's not able to come up with, basically. Um, well, I shouldn't say that. Um, but like, you know, three key things. And so that extends the inning. Stennett pokes one down the right field line. So now it's first and second. The tying and go-ahead runners are on. It's a been a long, long day for Mike Flanagan. It's cold out and up steps, up steps Omar Moreno, the top of the order. And there's a pitch here. Now Flanagan... Again, it's a weird thing of where he's made some mistakes, but he's also had some dominance in this game too. He's been able, you know, he's been able to strike some guys out, induce a lot of weak contact, right? Really the, you know, he's had some hard hit balls, but, you know, that's kind of his game, right? That's how he pitches. He's this guy who, it's a little bit of give and take with him, right? There's there's these ups and downs. And he is going to be able to deliver here on the eighth, get his team back in the dugout, send it to the ninth with a little help from the umpire. Punch foul back in the crowd. That's 125 pitches now for Mike Flanagan. Hold him out on a curve. So Keith, Darrell Weaver stuck with his ace. That's a close pitch. Boy, you think this is a nasty pitch. Besides being close, and it is right there. So Flanagan hangs in and gets his man. And we've got a 5-4 ball game in the middle of the eighth inning. Yeah, uh, that curveball was way off. the. That's about four balls, four or five balls off the plate outside. However, Rick Dempsey was set up out there, and back in the day, when you hit your spot, you oftentimes got rewarded, <laughs> whether or not the pitch was actually over the plate. That pitch was not a strike. Uh, and perhaps, you know, I would say in this game so far, Flanagan had Moreno's number, was probably going to find a way to get him out, but you never know. 
you never know in baseball. And that kind of got taken out of Moreno's hands there. Um, and so Grant Jackson comes in uh, to pitch the former Oriole, by the way, who was on the 71 Orioles and has been a very effective re- reliever throughout his career. Uh, he's able to work around a Rich Dower single um, and get this to the top of the ninth, still five to four. Tim Foley grounds out to short. Belanger comes in, makes a nice play. Then Dave Parker, he's able to single the ball right up the middle. Again, a great game for Dave Parker. I believe he, four hits, right? Four hits and five at-bats. Also, by the way, Mike Flanagan's still out there pitching to guys the fifth time around the order. Talk about something that would not happen nowadays. And he's already up over 130 pitches. But with Bill Robinson at the plate, something very, very interesting happens here. And I'm gonna I'm gonna play it the audio. It doesn't end up being the consequential play of this game. But boy, could it have been. I mean, if this game if if the ending of this game plays out a little differently, and especially with who comes up to the plate. Boy, this would be talked about as, wow, what a moment in a World Series. And what a comeback. What what fortune for the Pirates. Still, all it goes to show in this game is, like, despite the great start for the Orioles, man, they're going to have to hold on for dear life to come out with this game. Tender, Stanhouse or right-hander. They've got uh-huh. Parker picked off. He's safe. Parker goes barreling into second base, and he clevers Belanger, and the ball is apparently loose, and Belanger is down. I'll tell you, he went in hard, and he just actually forced that air. He went in. He talked about an 89-foot slide, and that's exactly what happened. They have him dead to rights right here. Yes, now Murray did. can't get it out of the that's club, That's the problem. That's what I want to call attention to. You're seeing Parker go down. And he was almost down there by the time the ball passed him. And that was the problem. Had Murray made the throw promptly, it would have been no contest. Here's Murray. Now they got him. Now he double clutches a little bit. Notice. He reaches in. And look how long it takes for that ball to get there. But look at this slide by Parker. And he is right on Belanger's glove. And he just kicks it out. And who does that remind you? Look at it pop in the air. Good camera work. What does that remind you of? Yes, Stanky sir. and Rizzuto. That's right. Back in 1951, when Eddie Stanky kicked it out of the Scooters Club. There it is. Yeah, he's out. That's a good angle. He was out. But the play became needlessly close, as Don pointed out, because of the lateness of the Murray throw. Well, Andrew stays. He's all right. You give credit to the second base umpire. That is Russ Getz. He was right on top of that play. There's something to be analyzed with uh, which players Howard Cosell so easily goes to criticize or very loudly. I mean, he's, he's he can be critical and laudatory of pretty much all players, uh, but especially young guys. Um he goes after and might be something more to that too. But anyway, it's just interesting Cosell talking about, oh, Murray. But also the reason why it took a little bit of time for Murray's is as he comes, Parker's 
taken up all of that stuff. He's got to find a lane. Uh, and man, I wouldn't want to be in there with Dave Parker coming in to slide. Um, Belanger's a much tougher man than I am. Um, but still, again, ball popping out, yet it's an out. It's an out. And yet you don't get it. Um, again, this makes me all the more impressed with um, Flanagan's performance in this game, the guts he has, how he's able to fight through it is quite impressive to me. It's quite impressive. He's able, you know, to get Bill Robinson, hits a little cue shot to second base. Parker moves up to third base, and that brings in Willie Stargell. And who else? Who else do you got to get through to get game one of this World Series? If you're Mike Flanagan, if you're Earl Weaver. I mean, I don't know. Maybe it would have been a smart idea to have a lefty ready uh, to go and face Stargell. And, you know, the last time these two matched up, Stargell obliterated a ball. It almost seems, I, I feel like many other managers here would want nothing to do with Willie Stargell. They'd say, hey, Bill Madlock, you got to beat me. Or if you want to pinch hit John Milner or whoever, if I bring in a righty, if I bring in Stan House or Stoddard or whoever. But Willie Stargell, you ain't beating me tonight. That's how most managers and frankly many pitchers would probably go about it, especially with the way he's swinging the bat. But not Mike Flanagan. And not Earl Weaver. Not Rick Dempsey behind the plate. They said, Willie, you're going to have to beat us. We're coming right at you. Take a listen to the final at bat. Game one of this World Series. 5-4, tying run. Just 90 feet away. The go-ahead run at the plate. It's Willie Stargell. This, this, this is what you want, folks, right? This is what you're looking for when you get to the World Series. Like we said, sometimes the final moments, it's the utility infielder, it's the backup catcher, it's some unknown reliever. But sometimes it's the Cy Young versus the MVP. Parker at third. So it comes down to this. The big man who homered in his last time at bat to open the eighth inning to make it a one-run ball game. A man who many think will be the MVP in the National League. Fans on their feet waiting for out number three. They'll watch it standing up. Willie Stargell on playing in the series says quote getting into the world series is like savoring a fine meal it's something you take slowly and enjoy every minute it's the best of seven feast the baltimore infield way back coming inside high pop left side belanger going out makes the catch Baltimore wins it 5-4. What a tough victory, and what an augury for this World Series. Each team playing according to its pattern of the year. It's really incredible when you look at it. 
Baltimore holding together with its pitching ace all the way. And the Bucks chopping, 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 getting the great relief pitching just fell. Well, you really can't say enough, I don't think, for the gutty performance of Mike Flanagan. He stayed right there. He fought him tooth and nail, and he ends up on top. Ooh, that pitch was right there for Stargell. Fastball, inner half. Probably had the breaking ball and the changeup on his mind. He's just laid on it. Just laid on it. And perhaps what also plays a factor is, like I said, Flanagan had a little bit of that cutter action, right? Of sometimes he could get a little inside the fastball. So maybe there was something with spin and Stargell, you know, gets barrel on it. It's just straight up into the air and Belanger gets, gets over, secures it with two hands and a huge sigh of relief from everyone on the Baltimore side because man, it feels like they escaped that one. Like it, it it reminds me a lot of game two of the championship series where early on it's all Orioles and then had to hold on for dear life and somehow came away with the victory, but it didn't, but it doesn't feel great, (laughs) right? You should feel great. You won game one of the world series, your guy threw a complete game and yet, man, those guys over on the other side, Pittsburgh, the Buccos, that's a tough bunch over there. I mean, they really fought. I mean, we couldn't do anything against their pe- against their pen. They shut us down completely. We were we were after that first inning, we were punchless. Right? And you know, for the Pirates, it was, hey, we figured Flanagan out. You know, we were getting to him. A couple breaks go our way, we take the lead. You know, and and we clean up our side, we clean up the defense, we've got this, right? And and what I love about baseball is there's tomorrow, right? You got to, there are things you take from it, but also the greatest thing is, hey, there's tomorrow. You got to go figure it out. You got to go take it. There's nothing better than playoff baseball. And this was a thrilling one, a, a just a great, a great start. Fascinating middle of this game. The, the, the ability of the Pirates to chip away and then a fantastic finish. The tension, exactly what you want. And then that's what it is. For, for Pirates fans, you tell us, hey, the end of the game, Dave Parker and Willie Stargell are up there to give us a chance to tie the game or win the game. Yeah, we'll take that. And for the Orioles, Mike Flanagan's on the mound. That's who you want out there. But man, I can't imagine knowing how ornery and how consumed with anxiety and paranoia about what can go wrong in a baseball game that Earl Weaver, that his mind wouldn't want to be him or around him <laughs> in that scenario. He's thinking, oh God. Uh, I, I also feel like sometimes Weaver, I don't know if he gets immobilized by that fear a little bit. I get the sense that he really didn't want to make the move because he was worried about what the counter was rather than 
hey, maybe my guy needs to be taken out of this game. But again, like I said, a real credit to Mike Flanagan. And I kind of wanted to make this episode about him. Um, you know, obviously we touched on the tragedy in his life. Um, but here we get to see the brilliance and that gutsy, that that determination, right, of I'm going to go out there and finish this, right? I, despite what's happened in the later endings of this game, I'm going to find it. I'm going to lock it down. For my part, I think that's really impressive. I give Flanagan so much credit for sticking with that. And battling. You know, that's going out there throwing 140 pitches when it might be at by, at by the end of the game, it's probably around, it's probably almost freezing out there. That takes guts, that takes strength. And Flanagan had that, you know, to be, to be a battler, whether it's just on the baseball diamond or, even with your own thoughts, it takes a lot of strength to go out there and do it every day. And Mike Flanagan, that's how I'll remember you. And I think how many of us should is this was someone who would go out there and do it and battle. And in many ways that's inspiring. A great game one for Mike Flanagan and the Orioles. Game two, going to be a matchup between Hall of Famers, Jim Palmer, Burt Blylevin. Going to be another great, tight World Series baseball game. Can't wait to cover it. Until then, catch you next time on Fall Classic Rewind.